Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 22 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. It's been a couple of months since the last episode, and I'm really glad to be back behind the mic for my own podcast. But in that time, I've had the good fortune to appear as a guest on three other shows. The Discussions on Christianity podcast with host Adam Hobbs, the Psychedelic Stories podcast with host Daniel Lyon, and the True Life podcast with host George Monty. It was a real joy to get to know each of these hosts and enjoy a unique conversation with each of them. I recommend you go check out those podcasts if you're interested, and I will link to each of those episodes in the show notes. I continued to endeavor to free up more time to devote to this podcast, and I plan to eventually deliver multiple episodes per month. But between my day job and busy family life, that is proving harder than I ever imagined. However, I believe that in the years ahead, there will be ever-increasing interest amongst people of faith concerning the topic of psychedelics. As this topic becomes more mainstream and laws restricting the use and possession of these substances change, our fellow Christians will be looking for information from their peers to better understand the role that psychedelics might play in their own lives and in society as a whole. Although many of you have taken an active interest in the topic for years, amongst most of our fellow Christians, this topic is still very much on the fringe, and they have yet to give it a second thought. Most of our fellow Christians are still largely informed on the topic from decades-old government propaganda and have yet to investigate the recent scientific and historic research that has recently become available. Regardless of your own conclusions about psychedelic use, You all are, by comparison, the pioneers of thought or early adopters on this topic. We are now only on the tip of the proverbial iceberg, and I am committed to growing and improving this podcast for years to come, making it a comfortable place for people of faith to share their thoughts and learn from the opinions and experiences of their peers. And you can help me do that by subscribing, sharing the podcast with others, leaving those comments and five-star reviews, and by supporting the podcast financially. So take a moment to visit thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support and show us some love. Shout out to Jill and to John who have recently made donations. Your contributions help me cover the cost of web hosting and inspire me to keep going. God bless you for sharing your precious resources with me and this project. Also, continue to reach out to me via email, contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. Almost every day I receive emails from listeners like you. Some are short, kind comments, while others share their thoughts and fascinating life stories with me. I assure you that I read and value all of your correspondence, and I definitely try to respond and interact with everyone. If, however, I fail to get back with you, It was not because I did not value your connection. It was because I got busy and you were lost in the shuffle. Never hesitate to reach out again and remind me 
especially if I promise to get back to you on something. I assure you, your correspondence is a joy, not a burden. Sometimes my busy life gets the better of me, and I am unable to get back in a timely manner. Every few months I try to review correspondence to see if I've left anyone hanging. I assure you I'm doing my best to keep up. In this episode of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, I'm bringing you a conversation I had last year with the host of the Philosophical Gospel Podcast, Ethan Ivey. This conversation was originally released on his YouTube channel, The Philosophical Gospel. I will also add a link to Ethan's channel in the show notes if you wish to investigate his other content. Ethan most often hosts deep conversations on philosophy and consciousness with highly esteemed guests while making those topics manageable for the average person. But in this case, he invited me to discuss faith, Christian living, and psychedelics. So enjoy our conversation, and be sure to hang around afterward for more news and information concerning the podcast moving forward. So with that, let's welcome Ethan Ivey to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Let's roll, man. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining me. Again, it's, uh, I appreciate it. Um, and the attempt is to kind of try to isolate where Christianity and psychedelics intersect by speaking with you about your experience and how it strengthened your faith, how you see it has enriched your faith. And um, since mine's a little bit inverse to that, coming back to Christianity through the psychedelic sphere, I wanted to compare and contrast those. So if you don't mind, kind of tell me about tell me about that experience for you. Yeah, I was raised in a you know a small southern town. Uh, Southern Baptist, you know, went to church every Sunday, uh, youth group on Wednesday, you know, pizza parties, evangelical outreach, you know, the whole thing. I just kind of took it for granted that this was the way of life in the church. And I didn't know much about the broader Christian community. You know, my grandparents were Methodists, um, had some friends who were Church of Christ, and it all seemed kind of similar, really. So I just kind of adopted what I saw around me in the Southern United States as kind of like the Christian community. You know, as you get older, you get more exposed to broader ideas. And I saw that there was a much larger Christian community in the world. Um, You know, the way Christianity is lived out, it, it takes different manifestations based on your geography, your culture, your race. And uh, so I began to have a more expansive view of the church, which I think is healthy and I urge everyone to do. So as a teenager, I began to experiment with drugs and alcohol, as many do. And inevitably, that led me to find psychedelics at about the age of 16 or 17. had my first experience with psilocybin mushrooms. And that was a powerful and relevatory experience because I had experienced God one way, like your typical child raised in American Protestantism. And whether it was just a psychological experience I had or whether it was actual spiritual connection, um, I had a different experience with God. It was a more hands-on, a more Damascus Road type experience, you know, where I saw, I saw God created humanity as one, 
And that, you know, that's not unusual. Um, you hear that a lot with people who had psychedelic experiences. They feel a connection to not only every other person, but almost like every other living being. And it's really hard to put that feeling and that idea into words, but I was fortunate to experience that. And it gave me a new, a new vision for what, what God is and how he moves and works in our lives and how he, frankly, how he designed the universe. I feel like it helped me understand that a little better or have a more concrete concept of the power of God in the life of people. Oh, that's, well, that's excellent. I mean, that's, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of, a lot of similar experiences, but in the Christian framing of it, it's kind of rare to hear, to hear of someone whose Christian faith was strengthened, or at least it, even hear Christianity come into the, the dialogue is rare with psychedelics. Do you think that your experience was with psychedelics, if you wouldn't have already been a Christian or would have already been religious, would have brought you to it um, specifically? Or I, I'm just I'm interested because a lot of times what people people get, um, it's it's kind of like it's a renaissance of psychedelics and meditation. And it seems like most people almost inevitably intractably go towards the Eastern religions and don't necessarily find what they're looking for there. You were beforehand were already a Christian. Were you ever brought to like meditation or did you ever feel a questioning of your Christian faith at all wavering as far as like, is this the right way to go after the psychedelic experience or did that do nothing but, you know, kind of strengthen your Christian faith? Hmm. That's a, Perfect question. Because so often, as you said, people who maybe are in a, even if they're not practicing Christians, you know, in the United States, for better or worse, whether we like it or not, we're all kind of steeped in a Christianity light kind of atmosphere. And it shapes, it shapes the way we view the world. And so I think for many people, the first time they try psychedelics is the first time they ever actually entertain alternative concepts. So yes, people are often led to more Eastern concepts. And I think that's largely because those practices have spoken to that state of mind or being more um, than the Christian you know, paradigm has, at least in the recent West. So uh, I might have lost your question, but <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's like I was basically getting. Yeah, that I think your point is right on. Um, what you had just mentioned about how people's inability to entertain alternate beliefs is so completely closed off most of the time, and that psychedelic experience may be one of that one of those experiences that loosen that tightly held belief, the egoic kind of attachment to your belief, and so potentially, yes, yeah, psychedelics have the impact to make people desire to look into other things just because their mind is for the first time ever even considered they might be the truth out there. Okay. That, that did, that did that for me. Um, it didn't lead me to more Eastern philosophy, but it definitely broadened my horizons to, to begin to investigate those philosophies, which was helpful. So although I never embraced them as a religious practice, those practices actually, I believe can enrich your Christian experience. You Absolutely. Know, uh, unfortunately, just by the course of history and geography, some of what we consider as religious practices are really just cultural practices that have been separated by time and geography. So I think things like 
meditation, which tend to be practiced more in the East. Uh, I think that the Western Christian experience can greatly benefit from that. Yeah. And so, so yes, I, I became, I became open to things like meditation. And although I didn't know I was meditating, uh, I began to do that in a prayerful way. So for lack of a better way of explaining it, I guess I adopted certain mantras that I would pray during the day meditatively to, mm -hmm. I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, keep myself on track. So what the, what the psychedelic experience did for me is it began a transition of me being a Christian who accepted Christianity as just like the broader paradigm that I never questioned to become something that I began to wrestle with in a healthy way. So I did begin to question, but not from an angry or pessimistic or judgmental attitude towards Christian faith. I began to, to question and discern it from within the Christian faith. So it enabled me to consider other spiritual disciplines as options and other schools of thought. So within Christianity, you have these schools of thought. If you're, if you're a Baptist, chances are most of the literature that you're exposed to and most of the, the documentaries and things of that nature you're exposed to are within that Baptist framework. Likewise, if you're a Roman Catholic or if you're a Methodist, you know, you're reading authors and you're consuming content from within that paradigm. And that can be healthy if you're if you're trying to learn more about your particular denomination or or manifestation of Christianity. But it can also build blinders up where you're unwilling or unable to see other Christian perspectives. So it helped dissolve that a little bit, allowed me to begin to consider other people's perspectives, people that were not necessarily from my particular branch of Christianity. And it enabled me to, to broaden my horizons as a person of faith and learn from different spiritual traditions, things that could help me in my Christian walk. So short answer, no, I never really questioned my Christian faith. It's always remained solid. And I know that's not everyone's experience. You know, oftentimes people take a different road post psychedelic experience. And, uh, you know, we all have a different road to walk. So I'd like yeah. to hear and and we can we can get back to my story but i would like to hear a little bit about maybe your uh introduction to christianity that happened to you as a young person or is that something that came about later in life um yeah it, it was kind of a a thread throughout my life i was raised kind of in different places and moved around a lot um with different family members and all that, those kinds of things due to circumstances um but most most of the time I was in a household that that seemed to be, you know, Christian in the sense that, you know, it was a church going family or that I went to a couple Christian schools throughout my my growing up and stuff. And so I was exposed to the religion in a variety of lights. Some of it was like um, Pentecostal to Baptist churches to um, Methodist. So I went to a lot of different churches, Lutheran, different times, uh, but never was I really like into it myself, I guess, maybe as a child, I went along with it. And then when I became a teenager, um, I strongly questioned all of its legitimate, the legitimacy of this story. It didn't seem to scientifically stand up to me. And so I 
became vehemently against Christianity. Really, I kind of made it a, I guess, staple of my character to make sure that I, I did everything I could to the people that believed it to make sure they knew that they were wrong kind of thing, <laughs> which was like what I did in high school and a little bit when I was a teenager, like the rebellious urge that my outlet for rebellion, I guess, was not was basically that way was to speak against this church that had obviously no idea what, what's what the real, what the real truth was. Um, and I thought I knew everything. So then after years passed and all that, I graduated high school um, a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, I had just a, a terrible traumatic relationship that kind of fragmented. And I kind of like, it was pretty traumatic for me the way it was, the way that it happened um, and it being, like somewhat abusive in nature and all that stuff led me to question the source of good and evil. Um, for some reason after that, when I was doing an inventory of myself, I realized that I didn't want to end up in that situation again. And what, what part did my agency have in that to get me there? And what part of it was exterior and from other sources. And so I did like a searching inventory on like how to avoid that. And possibly also this where malevolence came from and inevitably I, I tried um, ketamine treatment throughout this process and psychedelics here and there. And those really pushed me to the religious texts of the Eastern religions. And I started to just go from there. And I kept finding, I kept finding something missing in all of those practices. As I did, as I had come, come into psychedelics and I'd, I'd, I'd become humbled significantly, basically after what the psychedelics didn't really lead me to, to God or anything like that. They, what they did was they led me to an understanding of myself not being and not knowing nearly anything. <laughs> so what the psychedelics did for me was lead me away from myself more so than lead me to God. I would say like it led me away from all of these, my intellect thinking, basically thinking I knew everything and realizing ultimately this creation has a lot to, you know, a lot that's we're we're never going to be able to know, I guess. And so I realized, okay, it's time to me to, tone the ego down, realize I don't have all the answers, and then maybe rely on something higher than me for the first time in a long time. Right. Yeah, I definitely felt humility, you know, because you, you know, especially when you're a teenager in your early 20s, you somehow you start to begin to think you've got it all figured out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get very judgmental uh, with other people because you think uh, they're just haplessly bouncing around life and they haven't, haven't figured out the wisdom that you've attained at the right yeah. age of tw 20 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, the psychedelic experience kind of like kneecapped me. It made me realize that, that everything I thought I knew was at best educated guesses. And that can be, that can be very unstabilizing for some people. Yeah. Um, fortunately for me, it actually, it actually led me to, you know, to lean more on my faith, you know, cause I knew that in spite of how much I developed my understanding and developed my self-discipline, like ultimately I had to rely on something more concrete than my own limited and feeble understanding of the world. So for me, it actually it spurred me to dig deeper in my faith, not to uh, abandon it. No, oh, yeah, that's great. Especially because I think just sharing my opinion on, on like the Christian side of things is there's something uniquely comforting about the fact that 
the story of Christ and, you know, incarnates God essentially in man. And so it, there's something unique about the personal relationship that Christianity offers to the person or the adherent of the religion. If one is following the principles of Christ, it's, it's, you get the logos is, is, is literally incarnated into man. And so for some reason, that aspect of Christianity is what, I mean, as I was, I don't want to use the word tinkering because I take seriously everybody's traditions, but as I was tinkering in, into Hinduism and going to these temples and, and like I said, tinkering, not meant to disparage those, those customs, but more so because that's how I was treating it. Um, and I was probably not the best way to go about it, but I was trying to figure out what the answers were to these questions and figured, well, Christianity must be the wrong answer because I already, I already tried that when I was a teenager and look at those stories. They make no sense. I was taking everything very literally and just kind of let the Bible become second to trying all these other religions. And then something about coming to Christianity and reading the stories, there's no, there's no other religious text I could find that caps, encapsulated the human experience so incredibly well. Uh, like you read the Eastern traditions and, and the like, they have the books like Bhagavad Gita, which was a book I really enjoyed, Hindu, Hindu culture, but then realized that these still left something to be desired. They presented God as this like ethereal ultimate field of conscious awareness or something like that, that was distant, but kind of in the background of everything. But there was no way by which to like support yourself with the religion as far as leaning on it whenever you need help or whenever you have anxiety. You know, the Bible kind of seemed to by having a God become man, that whole that whole idea seems to be a grounding point of Christianity with would you say so as well? You would think, I mean, that is a unique thing Christianity can offer people who are searching anyways. Absolutely. I think sometimes in Western Christianity, we don't express that Eastern idea enough. You know, uh, that's the beautiful thing to me about Christianity. You know, God is this ultimate foundational consciousness that all the universe is built on. Yes. But he's, he's also deeply personal. So, uh, God is both abstract and so relational to the human experience that even a child can receive it. You know, so it, it's a story that's both like potent and rich and pregnant with possibility and and astonishment. But it's also it's also simple. I agree. And I think I think it's interesting, too, is. I was look. I was just looking at polls of the United States, particularly, and it just seems like the Christian. As I've come back to the Christian religion, it seems to have done the opposite for the rest of the population, um, which is weird. Because back when I was back before 10, 10, 12 years ago, whenever I was vehemently against religion in general and had an ideology to propagate, you know, scientism over over the top of religion, it didn't seem as much back then that it seemed like I was on a smaller side of the of the table then. And then when I just I came back to Christianity and, and assumed as I would start looking into this, that it would be received very, you know, because I thought everybody was a Christian. And I realized that it seems actually in the U.S. there's been a decline of, of Christians and, and uh, it's not really the, the idea of the ideas of Christianity just don't seem to be embraced like I've been able to learn them recently. Like as I've come back to it and I start reading the Bible myself and I come to these interpretations then I realized that they don't jive with what I was taught in church as a child. My interpretation of God just seems to be, it needs more um, intellectual vigor to it. And the church, the Baptist church and the particularly Protestant churches to me, didn't seem to provide a rich or steep intellectual tradition. Like you were saying, as you explore the church, 
you read a certain type of, you read John Calvin, you might read Martin Luther, it might be, but then you go to the Catholic or the Orthodox traditions and the saints in those traditions as they, you know, deemed them. It seemed to me those books and reading the, the fathers of the church, Catholic church was one of the most intriguing uh, intellectual endeavors into the theolo theology that is really provides somebody who may be on the fence because of intellectual dis like disagreements uh, could find a really rich platform to come back to it and retain the intellectual side of it. So I guess what I'm, I'm asking you is you, you had mentioned exploring the different types of churches and avenues by which Christianity is practiced. Do you, have you um, encountered much of the writings of, of the saints of the church, Catholic church or the Orthodox church? And have you garnered much from, from those before in the past? Yeah, I'm just beginning that journey, honestly. So when I was um, around the age of 19 or 20 and I began to take my Christian faith very seriously, I was looking for something and I'm not I don't want to disparage anyone's denomination or particular faith. But growing up in the 80s and 90s, I found the theology of the Baptist church that I was raised in to be to be solid and anchored, but a little bit shallow. And I wanted something more deeper and fleshed out. And so I found myself in a community of, of Calvinists. And so we did read a lot of Luther, a lot of Calvin. And so for me to go through the Bible in like in a very systematic and theological way and, and learn about, you know, the fact that the King James version is not the first version of the Bible, you know, Jesus didn't speak English. <laughs> so we actually have to look at ancient texts and we, we need to, maybe we need to read from a few different versions of the Bible to get a more cohesive understanding of, of the original languages. And so reading, you know, commentaries by medieval scholars, I found to be helpful. You know, I found it gave me a different, you know, a different understanding of, of the Bible that I had heretofore, you know, understood it as, and as this Americanized, you know, modern Christian idea concept, you know, filtered through all our modern uh, filters of culture and, and race and, and American, you know, understanding. And yeah. so I spent about 16 years of my life in that tradition, which was very enriching. Honestly, I learned a lot about the Bible, a lot about Christian living. Then about eight years ago, um, I moved into the Episcopal church which has a more connection with the Catholic church, more um, connection with the Orthodox tradition. And so I have just recently begun to investigate the lives of the saints, the different perspectives on Christianity from an Eastern and a Western perspective. So I'm just beginning that journey. If you don't mind, I would like to ask you how you found ketamine. What led you there? That was, I guess it was, um, yeah, I guess at that point I wanted to, I was on anti-anxiety medication and medication for and stimulants for ADHD at the time. And I didn't want to be on them anymore necessarily. And I wanted whatever the problem that was causing me to be on those to be gone. And it coincided with, like I told you, a traumatic ending to a pretty rough experience. And so I was kind of at the same time wanting to get off of those medications, but also wanting to try to find a deeper psychological understanding of, of, kind of what had led me to where I had ended up and how to avoid it. I truly wanted to understand the human idea and experience 
and simultaneously be able to get off of these drugs I thought were keeping me from having a full personality. <laughs> and so I, I actually only, I did only two um, infusions of ketamine because the experience was so incredibly intensifying to me that it, it, I felt like I, I received from ketamine what I was going to need to receive from it in order to what I needed, I think more so than anything was a breaking down of a really solid, rigorous ego that had no, no need to exist. And, uh, and then once that happened, I was able to open my mind to religion. Otherwise, without some of these psychedelic experiences, I can kind of for almost 99.9% .9 sure say I never would have found my way back to the Bible. So once it, once the experience was just so intensifying to me to see this phenomenon of consciousness, that's what it had brought up to me after these experiences, this nature of inquiry into mind and what really mind is um, became like from a scientific perspective, like I was and highly atheist, I didn't want to default to scripture immediately. I wanted to prove this. So I, so I was like, well, so this left me with a very rich inquiry that I couldn't answer, which led to the starting of my podcast, really. And that was the inquiry of consciousness. Where does it come from? And, and why does a, and how by natural selection and evolution, can you just, you can just have this sense of good, true, beautiful, and you can have like an organism as complex as the human one. And I just couldn't. So then I realized that in the West, they call it the hard problem of consciousness and that science has zero answer, answer to it. So I started wanting to figure out, well, could this be a religious phenomena? Could this answer be un, unattainable through simple peering through a microscope type thing? And so I, I started looking into the Vedic text and Indian text and realized that they all they did was talk about consciousness. And I thought that was weird um, that some, that they had come to these same and they had also introduced psychedelics into their into their culture. But I realized that even they didn't know what it was. They just called it the Brahmin or this unknown force. They still couldn't explain how it related. So then stumbling into uh, Christ sorry, I think I went way off the way off with this question. Yeah, you asked me about ketamine. Now no, I'm on this. Yeah, well, no, that's that's important because uh, ultimately I want to know how it led you to, you know, to begin to, to intersect back with Christianity. So yeah, and, and and yeah, okay, good. Yeah, and so ketamine kind of forced that forced my hand at um, humbling me down to the point of understanding. There is a God now, which I needed um, severely because I had like this constant intellectual battle with myself where it would it would override my faith. My intellect would. And I needed something to help me see a clear difference between intellect and wisdom. <laughs> and that I had maybe a little bit of this one, but hardly any of this one um, and realized that there's two sides of that coin. And that uh, the ego, the ego that you're trying to create by simply garnering all this knowledge doesn't still leave you with, with any wisdom uh, or understanding, per se. And so basically going into those Hindu temples and going into that came from the psychedelic experience, but left me without the ability to answer the question of consciousness. And so I started looking at, started looking into the Christian Bible and read the book of Job, which struck me as very interesting. And then the book of Genesis. And then I started realizing, oh, this concept of the Holy Spirit could be the answer to this hard problem of consciousness. And then, of course, no scientist is going to accept that. But me personally, on my searching, it, my goal was to, to try to find the nature of this phenomena that nobody can tell me what it is, not even the best and brilliant scientists know. And they call it a problem. And I was like, so I started seeing it as, oh, this isn't a problem. And maybe this, it seems like when the Bible speaks on the Holy Spirit and things like that, it provided the most rich answer to me to what this consciousness really is. And that it's this three person God who's all, but is all who's one, but also three 
And it started just making perfect sense to me that the Holy Spirit has to be this consciousness element of the enlivens the body. And Jesus and Christ kind of represented the, the incarnation of that. And then the father kind of emanated what, what set in the background of everything, but all at once too. So it seemed like it, for some reason, just clicked with me that one day I was like, you know what, this is what consciousness is. It's, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit kind of. And then of course I have no data to prove that. And it's not going to be an answer that's going to be accepted, you know, as a cross it off the list of scientific inquiry now, but my answer has come in that form. Right. I mean, ultimately we all have that question, you know, even the most, the most, scientifically rigorous among us at bedtime we were laying there sleepless staring at the ceiling that ultimate problem we can't find it in a test tube so throughout history humanity has sought to define it capture it in some way make it understandable and shareable with others and to some degree we're all just kind of groping you know we don't really have i don't think we have the vocabulary to explain and define that concept of universal consciousness. And I, I, I enjoy, you know, a lot of your, your podcast because you're delving into that deeply um, from different angles. And I think that's all we can do. I think that, that in time we grow closer to an understanding by just continuing to ask the questions from different angles and gathering different perspectives hopefully the search for god gives us greater insight in, into god and into deep universal consciousness yep i agree and i think that like you had mentioned the orthodox church and, and episcopalian as well i recently um, had started going to episcopalian church as well and prior to that had discovered like the yeah the writings of the saints and things like that and just realized wow that this was a some of these concepts that some of these deep intellectual rigorous rigorous theologic theologians from from the medieval times like thomas aquinas and people like that they presented some of the mo most intense arguments for the existence of god that it, some of them are almost irrefutable and they're beautifully written it's just for some reason i in, in the Western Baptist, mostly, or Pentecostal, or whatever it was, Protestant Western traditions I was exposed to, did not include any rigorous intellectual interpretation. Um, and so that seemed to me, and the and especially since I think maybe my my area that can help others would be to people who have on the fence questions to be able to help them over those questions because I had to because I fought that same or still continue to fight that like intellect versus faith question all the time. And I don't want to let my faith wither, but I also know that every time that happens, I can go back to these really deep religious writers and see that even the strongest, most most intelligent people in history, some of them, or literally members of the church, whether that be Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. I mean, Luther and Calvin are excellent writers. I mean, you have, uh, it just seems like um, people nowadays, especially since there's a growing secularism, they probably have never heard of these people. <laughs> they probably have never right. read. And, you know, it seems like maybe there's a, like just simply an introduction to this deeper idea of what God is. He's not this benevolent man sitting on a giant chair, you know, in the sky that we got to get that, that, that interpretation is what people think of as Christianity. And if you start looking into it in a deeper way, you realize this is much more than that. Right. Yeah. Um, did, did your experience with ketamine that did that lead you to find or take interest in other psychedelic uh, practices? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, before the before I did had ketamine infusion, it was I had experimented with uh, LSD and psilocybin a few times and DMT and pretty much all of them. Uh, um, basically, because I was overtly intrigued by what what they were doing to my mind, I didn't really know, but I coupled it with a rigorously uh, intense study. Um, like I I took it seriously. Once I figured out what these were doing, I was like, this is. I, I need I need this experience a few more times. I need to figure out what it means because this is incredibly powerful and also life changing for me. I mean, it re, re, it gave me a sense of why to live rather than like how am I going to make it through it, it, it. The how became this a quote from Frederick Nietzsche, but he says, you know, those that have a, a why to live will figure will make it through any how. And before I had no sense of why. Um, I had felt, you know, mistreated. I had also felt like I had done wrong. You know, I had, you know, there was no uh, way out that would, you know, (laughs) so it was more or less just using alcohol or whatever mainly, you know, and uh, then somehow a why came out of all this psychedelic experience. And that why was the greatest question anybody could ever ask. But for the longest time, I kind of asked it with um, a cynical tone. It was like, why? This is all pointless anyways, nihilistic. Now the why became the justification for everything around what I had to do. So then I started doing my podcast and I started doing these endeavors that I never would have done because I was too lazy or too unmotivated. But then I found a why and it seemed like I, that's why I kind of continued to look into the psychedelics and, and to explore them was because they were nurturing that why. And eventually it got to the point where the spiritual practices themselves were enough without the psychedelics to satisfy this hunger. And so that kind of just, went through the Eastern and ended up at Christianity realizing this is, this is for sure the truth <laughs> to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I stopped using cannabis and psychedelics, it wasn't because I was necessarily convicted that those things were inherently wrong. At, at the end of that, it just inspired me to live a Christian life. And so I was trying to figure out what that was and, and everything around me told me that the Christian life is, being sustainable, you know, having a career, um, you know, settling down, getting married, starting a family. And those are all beautiful things. They don't necessarily have to be a part of the Christian life, but that's the way I understood it. And so to my great benefit, I pursued those things. And, and I didn't see how psychedelics could continue to be a part of that paradigm um, with the lifestyle and the relationships and the career I was building. So I just kind of shelved it, left it behind, never abandoned the, you know, the deep revelations I got from those experiences. And then a couple of years ago, you know, so much news and so many um, new studies were beginning to be done, you know, for the average person, if they are scrolling through stories and they see something about psilocybin or MDMA, they may just pass that by, you know, the average Christian. But because of my experiences as a youth and a young adult, those things caught my eye. And so I began reading all those articles and seeing there was this kind of surge in largely within the academic community and the uh, mental health community about the potential of you know psychedelic benefits. And so I just began to investigate it more and more and read, you know, every article that came out, but still didn't have anybody within my community to, to share those ideas with, you know, when you're learning about something, you want to share it. 
And it's generally not healthy to bottle things up and hide your interests from your friends because those things come out in weird ways, you know. Yeah. Um, you'll find yourself just blurting out something like, have you heard about psilocybin? And somebody looks at you like, <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and uh, so I thought I've got to find a, a way to share these ideas within Christian community. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was an avid, you know, audio book and podcast listener. And I listen to these podcasts where people are just freely sharing information. Yeah. To, yeah. To the masses, you know, and um, and communities are built around those, you know, the, that sharing of information. And I thought there has to be millions of Christians out there who are doing the same thing I'm doing. They had they have powerful experiences, probably in their youth, probably a long time ago, and they haven't forgotten them, but they don't know what to do with them. They can't share them with anyone that respects them because they don't want to damage those relationships. So without really knowing anybody to talk to, I just started and then started reaching out to people who maybe had mentioned something here or there, which kind of starts a snowball rolling, you know, because then that person knows somebody and it's been about a year now, and I know a lot of people who are taking an active interest in this, um, the topic of psychedelics from a Christian perspective. And I think there's real a real hunger for knowledge, but not a lot of us who can speak to it with any any gravity or authority. And I'm not trying to do that myself. Yeah. My involvement here is more from a, a sense of a spirit of investigation and a, a willingness to learn. Absolutely. No, that's, well, that's my perspective on it too. I'm no, I'm no, I'm in no way, shape or form an academic. And so I find it just, uh, just very grateful that there's people that willing to spend a couple hours with me who are such high, high, high esteem on those things and try to ask them simple minded questions and get their answers to those. So I think being able to, to have these dialogues, like you said, it's, it's very neat and it's very nice of some of these people to take their time that, you know, much highly intellectual than me and could probably do a lot more than what they're doing and spend two hours asking some, you know, listening to some person, ask them about the basic questions of life, but they're willing to spend those time doing that. Maybe it makes it more accessible to those who don't, you know, who want to talk about these things, but don't have the dialogue or the vocabulary. So they need somebody to ask these people, dumb questions and get the intelligent people to answer them. So that's kind right. of what my, my, my well, goal is trying to do. Most of your guests appear to be far smarter and far more accomplished than myself. So I'm, I'm honored to be counted among them now. So, Oh, well, I, well that's very nice of you, but yeah, no, I, uh, most of the people I'm, I'm trying to talk to are about, were about consciousness at first. And now, now I really want to talk to people about theology more. So, I've, I've, uh, I started out with that nature of like really trying to what consciousness was and thought I had the scientific angle I could take at it and realized that it's such a religious thing that now it's almost not even, it's not, it's basically, it's more fun to talk about it with people who believe in a creator because then it just puts more of a logos behind everything and more of a meaning behind the dialogue to me. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't like having dialogues with all kinds of people, but you know, it, it is once you get to, at least in my sense, which is coming new to a religious faith, but being very, very grounded in it, it seems like it becomes a little bit more fun to talk with people who have the same beliefs, just because you can just, you can have the discussion as if, you know, there's a meaning inherent to simply having this discussion. We're not trying to prove the meaning. The meaning comes from 
you know, spreading the, you know, the, the good news, so to speak, through a medium such as psychedelics. If that's one way to do it, well, it seems to be a good spot to try to do that, being that there's like a renaissance of psychedelics. Um, but I did see one of your guests. I, I didn't get to finish the whole conversation, but he had, I think he had participated in like the study at Johns Hopkins on religious leaders and psychedelics, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask you, particularly, uh, I didn't get to, get to the part of it yet where he was dispensing with that much, but did you take any interesting insights? That seems like a very interesting guest. Um, did you take anything interesting from what he had to say about his experience as a, I believe, like an Episcopalian priest and having gone through that study? I think that would be a neat story. Yeah, um, I've been fortunate to have three people from that study on. Uh, one was a Lutheran pastor in the Midwest. One is an Episcopal priest in uh, Long Island, New York. And the other is a, an Episcopal priest who has ceased his parish duties and has started an organization centered around the topic of Christianity and psychedelics. Uh, and that is Hunt Priest, and his organization is Lagare.org. So there's Plenty of information on that we can discuss, but you might have been listening to uh, Roger Joslin. Was that? Yes, that's that it. Him? Okay. Yeah, he's he's in New York. Great guest. Enjoyed speaking to him. And, you know, I've yet to really draw any conclusions. It, it is very interesting to hear these people tell stories. So uh, Hunt, Roger, and James Lindbergh, you know, these are these are men who were already serving in the church as Christian ministers in their communities. And they learned about this study at Johns Hopkins to allow previously unexposed people to psychedelics who serve in Christian and uh, other ministries as well. I believe they have, yeah, they have, uh, they had rabbis from the Jewish community and uh, I believe some Buddhist spiritual leaders as well participate in the study. I've yet to speak to any of them, but I would, I would enjoy that to get their perspective. So these are people who are already steeped in the, in the spiritual tradition and then allowing them to experience psychedelics in this case, psilocybin, and then share their experience with the scientific community. And that study has yet to be released. I believe it's any day now looking forward to that. Yeah. But yeah, if you have any particular questions about what I've learned from those people or what I've gathered, you, I'll entertain that. Yeah, sure. I was. I just found it interesting um, that there was a study in that framework, and what specifically from from the perspective of you having spoken to a lot more people who are in the, I guess you would say the clergy, um, the, the priesthood, and things like that. I, I'm trying to kind of go that direction in the future with my podcast and start speaking to more people where I can dispense with Christian theology more so than just philosophy. And so it seems to me it's interesting to have a already non. Um, a, a person who's in a religious leader, like a priest, who's not exposed to psychedelics yet, go and intentionally expose themselves to it. Did they tell you anything about how it strengthened their faith, or what? What? What did it do? What did it seem to do for them, just subjectively overall? Did they, did these priests come out of this experience more enriched, more questioning, more? Um, did they have any insights into that kind of phenomena afterwards? Hmm. I don't want to put words in any of their mouths, but but yeah, I'm getting a common thread uh, with everyone in that regard. I speak to it seems to have only deepened their experience as a human and their capacity to understand the divine. 
I know that sounds broad and vague, but <laughs> that that's what I've gleaned from from them sharing their experiences with me. I see. So, yeah. So almost uh, kind of affirming affirming of like the ineffability of God, almost like the the nondescript aspect. The the because at least like talk, listening to a lot of Catholic bishops and stuff talk it seems like they use the word ineffable a lot, like just where God kind of remains in this domain that, that kind of exists outside language where, but that's kind of what you're getting from these, these people as well is that, that it, it kind of, it's that collision with the real or the oneness experience of consciousness meeting almost what it came from. It leaves you with almost a more convicted sense of knowing God, but, but even a more humbler view of it, but you're at least that's a theme you think you're observing even from religious leaders, which is kind of intriguing. Yeah. I've yet to hear, you know, any of them say, um, you know, no, it was just a drug experience. I didn't glean anything from it. Yeah. You know, and these aren't just average people. These are people who have spent their lives and their career, you know, in the church and in, you know, theological devoted practice. So to hear them come away from that experience, so moved and so inspired, definitely makes me think there's something of value there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that, it's very, it's, it'll be a very interesting study to see, um, specifically dealing with people who were basically virgins to psychedelics completely, but were already um, in the clergy or, or high or in the priesthood. And um, that'll be the findings from that, I'm sure, will be nothing short of a very spectacular, really, to see how somebody can take such a deep, already fortified belief and faith. Because that's what I find interesting, just specifically with your experiences, is how psychedelics brought me to it through such a militant atheist framework prior. Um, to seeing it to religious leaders who are already convicted and already faithful, it, it doesn't seem to be moving them away from their faith. And if anything, it seems to be bringing people to it who were who were not exposed to it before. So, if anything, psychedelics are furthering people's faith in the divine, increasing their uh, humbleness um, and humility, and decreasing their ego and, and pride. It just seems to be across the board. So you know, and if it's leading people to a to a higher power or to a higher calling, then of course these things may play a huge role, I would have to assume, in, in reviving a Christian movement and reviving the spirit of it, if used, you know, responsibly and understood to be what it is. Um, so it's it's interesting. But one thing I do want to ask you, um, since you're you've been I've you've been attending the Episcopal Church and, and I something about the Christian religion and the practice of the sacred as far as like um the Eucharist or the you know like the Last Supper, taking communion, doing those kinds of things. Um I remember as a child being in the Baptist tradition, that was a pretty, uh, like it was nothing against it. It was just a very haphazard ceremony. It was passed around kind of briefly. There wasn't a lot of ceremonial prestige placed upon this like real presence of Christ in the body of Christ and the blood of his. Basically, to me, it seems like psychedelics lead people to meditation and ritual and people desire communion of of some sort, like in, in Christianity, it's almost like it's followers kind of make up this body of Christ now. Well, at first and for the longest time, I thought, well, communion is simply a tradition thing, but it seems to be a way that's central to Christianity. And me being new to, to being a follower of Christ as much as I've become, I found it that this may be, how do you see the, those kinds of things like the Eucharist? And do you, do you um, see those as a an integral part of Christianity? And, and if so, has the Episcopalian church specifically given you an opportunity to observe those ceremonial practices better, more so than other churches? Great question. So I have an ever evolving idea uh, surrounding all this. And, and if I get off track, 
hold space for me and bring me back to yeah. back, back to the conversation if I, if I wander too far. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, post-enlightenment rationalism has kind of benefited society on one side of the scale. So we've learned a lot by developing, you know, measuring things, taking stock of the natural world, viewing things through microscopes and telescopes. All that has provided us with an astonishing amount of data that we can use to manipulate the natural world, to benefit our health, to supply comfort and plenty of food to the world. But it's left us uh, spiritually unnourished. And it hasn't only affected the scientific community. It's affected the church. So modern Western Protestantism was established almost as in opposition to more traditional Catholic Eastern mysticism. So it's led the American Protestant church down a road which has culminated in it, in it ex viewing things of a mystical spiritual nature with deep suspicion. Yes. So it, it's, it's made us very sterile and very unimaginative. <laughs> and in my opinion, led to a deep spiritual deficit. So to validate what you were saying earlier, my experience as a child was similar. It was like, uh, the Bible says we have to do this. So we're going to pass around some crackers and some grape juice and, you know, let's, let's do it. And you did it, you know, a couple times a year, whether you needed it or not. And, uh, as the saying yeah. goes and, um, coming to view the Lord's supper, the Eucharist as a more, um, foundational, more, spiritually potent practice has been incredibly valuable in my life. But the modern American Christian is just like the atheistic skeptic. They don't really want anything in their religious experience that they can't put in a box. And I think if we're going to be honest, not only as Christians, but also as the scientific atheistic rationalist, we're going to have to be not only comfortable with, but happy to say there's a whole can of worms that we don't understand. We can't get our minds around it. L let's be willing to admit that. Let's be willing to admit mystery, embrace it, love it, and appreciate it for what it is. Because I don't believe the human experience, no matter how deep we dig, into scientific rationalism, I don't think it'll ever reveal the deepest secrets that we all wish to know. And that, I think that can only be found in a spiritual approach. And to a large degree, there's always going to be an element of mystery in that department. Yeah, no, I like I hope that. I hope that answered your question. If not, we'll flesh it out some more. No, well, I like your description of it, actually. And I, and I think that it's it's nice to kind of synergize with someone who had at least the experience of of the Eucharist having having been brought back to it and kind of a reformed view of it essentially as well. It seems like you may have had you know gleaned from your time at the Episcopalian Church or just afterwards um, getting out of the Baptist tradition. And like you said, no no disparaging of the Baptist denomination, but of course to me it seems like 
this practice of of the Eucharist and stuff just is so it's such a cornerstone to what Christ wanted for his church. And I'm nobody to say what Christ wanted, but I'm trying to read the Bible now as my like you had said, um, a variety of interpretations, but ensure that I'm sticking to the canon and, and what it is. Um, but I just it's hard to see. It's hard to not find it to really be if you're going to be a truly trying to follow and have a discipleship within your life towards that, that of Christ, it, it's hard to not see his emphasis placed on that ritual being something important. Um, and if it is, then, then um, potentially it's something that, that could strengthen the faith of a church that could bring the church more into a cohesive community, which is what I would assume Christ, you know, it, he wants his followers, I, I would assume in, in mass to gather um, as a community of the mystical of his mystical body, I guess you would say, or his, you know, his presence in the world today is is represented in, I guess, the communing of these churches together to represent and recognize, you know, the what the importance of right worship, I guess I would say. But I guess what I'm I guess what I'm trying to get at there is I think that even the psychedelic experience merging that with this psychedelic people people come out of those experiences, they desire to commune more. A lot of times you see the extroversion goes way up in these people, but the Christian faith, they don't find it. Well it seems to me like it's it's actually it may be maybe there's a lot of people right now in the Catholic Church who don't see the value of the Eucharist or something like that, maybe. But I'm thinking that there'll be a wave of people who desire and long for a ceremonially intensive worship that's not just Sunday, Sunday morning. And then the rest of the week is kind of a different life. And then Sunday morning, you have this kind of thing. And I, I think that it wouldn't it may not be too off the rails to say that even some of the younger people coming up are going to desire a richer spiritual like you had said, you you said it very well. There's a there's a separation in the Middle Ages and stuff of mysticism and Christianity, and then the Reformation and all that. But yeah, that, that certainly it seems like the Catholic and the Orthodox Church they've got the intellectual rigorous history to back up their theological arguments for God. They have a practice that's very objectively in place, whether it's right or wrong. And then you have the incense and you have all that ceremony. Then you go to a Baptist church and you've got a very seemingly lack of of that unfortunately which is no it's fine you know for some people i'm sure but i just think it's going to be important to in order for the church to want to instead of the church asking why are there so many atheists maybe the church should ask themselves why they're allowing so many atheists because they're not i mean you're not rolling out the red carpet with intellectual fervor you're not you're not you're not even coming close to countering most of the arguments presented and that's not not saying i am but if you ask a preacher what's the nature of good and evil, they give you a, a shallow answer. That answer needs to, you're, you're dealing with intellectually rigorous people. So you're, you can't say, well, God just gives evil for good. I mean, it just seems to me like they're going to have to fortify their theological apologetics in order to get more people. Because if you're not, then, then your faith is almost indefensible. I mean, you, you get, you get shown up by science people or scientists all the time, but really I've, I've discovered that Christian Christianity and its history has a lot of answers to these questions. And I think it's, going to become critical that the, the church as a community answers these questions correctly is what I'm getting at, I guess. Right. And I think we be, have to be, we have to be humble and willing to engage with, you know, the unbelieving community uh, and meet them where they are and not be haughty or pretentious. You know, I, I heard a, a gentleman once say, uh, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. That, that may help you sleep at night, but that doesn't help you engage with the unbelieving world. You know, no. you're starting, you're starting from a premise of 
the Bible as a concrete platform from which to, you know, engage life. That person is not. So maybe find some common ground with that person and then engage in an extensive and possibly lifelong uh, conversation with that person that engages both of your, you know, spiritual and academic, you know, understanding of the world. You know, yeah. let's not be so quick to write people off or slap a label on them um, just because they don't, you know, share our religious convictions. Yeah, no, it's important. I mean, it, like you said, there's a lot of not, there's a lot of that, you know, um, discursion within the church itself that prevents them from reaching people that they would be able to reach normally. And they don't put up the best front for themselves all the time either. And so not it's it's on the it's on every I mean, it's on the church to probably produce a more intellectually rigorous pathway forward if they do want to complain about the issue of so many atheists. Well, then why do you have so many atheists? Well, because they're presenting very logical arguments to the non-existence of a creator. But your history offers you a very illustrative and rich way to to bring these saints and these fathers of the church back to the forefront because their theological arguments are 4,000 pages long and they're almost irrefutable by any scientist. So somehow if we can, on a less than hyper intellectual realm, bring these arguments of the saints and of the church fathers down to a level that's, that's palatable to the most questioning of, of atheists or agnostics, it's going to help, I think, significantly show them that there's not just this surface level answer to the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Lots of very intelligent men who are devoted Christians thought this out for a long time. <laughs> And wrote about it for years, you know. Yeah, that's a challenge in our own day, you know, because we're a we're a soundbite culture, and so uh, you know, reading a rigorous medieval treatise on the nature of sin is not something <laughs> anybody wants to do, even the modern Christian. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, I, we're we're too easily entertained, and um, it it takes a lot of rigor you know, to delve into those, into those topics to that degree. It does. Um, so I, I sympathize with, with everybody's plight in that regard. And I want to, I want to reiterate this, you know, we, we're, we, throughout the conversation, we've kind of used the word Baptist as like the poster boy for modern American evangelical. Yeah, no, and I didn't mean to do that either. Uh, <laughs> so many of my, my close friends and relatives are faithful, earnest Christians in the Baptist church and they, they're willing to, you know, have these conversations. And I think that what we're referring to is an error that's coming to an end. You know, I see American evangelicals moving more and the more in the direction of uh, having a desire to understand deeper spiritual practices and concepts. Um, I think that that's the legacy of a post-reformational distancing ourselves from the Catholic Church, and especially in the in the generation of my children, I see um, I see more interest coming from the evangelical community in um, pre-Reformation thought and practice, and and so I think I think there's a real openness to that now that we just haven't seen the fruit of yet. No, no, I think that's I think you're very much true. I think that's very much right. And I think there's a lot of good going on in that same sector as well. And like you said, it's good to point out that we're, I'm not trying to strongman the Baptist Church either in any way, because I have no no right by which to, to say any of them are right or wrong. In fact, I'm I'm actually in the middle of trying to figure out which which one of these denominations or, or um, platforms is best for me, because I'm kind of new to the Christian tradition in a 
in a way that I want in, in this way where I, I want it to become more of a cornerstone to how I go through life as opposed to a Sunday type thing. And I get, I get hung up all the time trying to figure out what's the best way to observe the Christian religion that fits biblically, apostolically, catholically, all of it, because because the Catholic Church seems to offer so much, so much, so much uh, richness and beauty and, and, and a lot of um, cultural tradition. But then there's also all these elements of it that I, I see they're in direct conflict with what the Bible seems to have said. Um, and then I went to the Episcopalian church and, and seeming seems to meet there like a, like almost the right amount of inclusion, but not too much. It's, it, it seems almost like having gone to an Episcopal church and gone and having been going through some of these denominations lately with a very inquiring mind and, and open to them. It's hard to figure out. It's kind of a hard search for a person who's coming to Christ. I could see it like, you know, as we, as hopefully as I would hope that the mission is for the church to bring more people to Christ, um, obviously um, as much as possible and in the, in the most loving way possible too. That's the most virtuous. And so to do that, you don't want young people kind of like aimlessly searching for a church. You know, that's not a fun experience either. You, you want to be able, it's not that it's not fun. I mean, I enjoyed seeing all the different traditions, but Sometimes it's disheartening, at least it seems like. Um, and so I wonder what what will help younger people out who are coming to Christ, even if they're coming through psychedelics and they have this inquiring mind as to who is God all of a sudden. Well, you want them to be able to go to their local church and get those answers. Um, you know, you want them to, if they ask the pastor, the pastor can help them instead of saying, well, you're going to need to go talk to a Buddhist monk because the Buddhist, you know, because the Eastern traditions are like they consider the spiritual masters. Um, but but it's almost like, man, the Christian community needs to start having these same intellectually rigorous masters, um, priests, and people like that seem to seem to serve a gigantic role and could be from bringing somebody to the church. Um, so I find that kind of um, interesting. And I guess what would what would you say to somebody who was kind of like maybe had come to experimenting with the different denominations, but was having um, trouble finding something that that fit what they were looking for? I can approach that from a couple of different angles. Cool. I think it might um, be a beneficial question for some people. Yeah. The, uh, I'll riff on that for a little bit for what it's worth, my perspective. Yeah. Um, if I was coming that from that as, um, you know, my formerly Calvinist self, you know, <laughs> I would say you have to find the most doctrinal, rigorous church within driving distance of your house. You know, it's like, so you got to check off the boxes, you know, they, are they, are they precisely in line with the Bible on every, you know, every box that you, you can check. Even the best of churches is going to come up wanting in some degree on that. I've never subscribed to that myself. I live in a community. I want to be a part of that community and I want to be a part of the tr Christian experience in that community. So that's going to narrow down my choices. Maybe I have felt the most resonance with the Greek Orthodox Church or uh, the Catholic Church or the Russian Orthodox, but maybe there's not one of those churches in my community. That's not going to stop me from attending a church in my community. I believe we're called to participate in the church universal. And if our particular favorite flavor doesn't exist in our community, that doesn't absolve us from participation. So I would encourage a person to find a community of Christians that resonates with them. And that's honestly, for most people, that's going to have very little to do with theology. 
it's going to have mostly to do with their upbringing, their politics, and uh, their culture. You know, they're, they're going to feel comfortable around the people who look and sound like them and the people who share their Saturday afternoon values. You know, if you're really into, you know, NASCAR, you're probably going to feel at home at a church where other people like NASCAR. And I know that sounds shallow, and we should aspire to greater spiritual investment than that. But we are, after all, just human beings. And we have uh, natures and proclivities that are, that are, are somewhat shallow. But being what you define as like the perfect Christian or the perfect Christian family, and yet you're isolated in your house, not engaging with the broader Christian community, I think that results in a spiritual deficit. So that's probably a long-winded answer to your question, but my advice to a person who is searching for a religious community where they feel comfortable is expose yourself to those those religious you know families within your community. Visit them, engage with them, talk to them after service, talk to the pastor, the priest. Inevitably, you'll find a place that resonates with you more than others. Because I think when you're in that searching process, it limits your ability to grow spiritually because you're still, you're spending so much energy on the search. Yeah. Um, and so once you've kind of figured that out, at least for a time, and just because you attend a church for five, 10 years, that doesn't mean that you're stuck there or you're, you know, whatever. Um, but that, then you can start investigating more about that tradition and more about your own personal faith. And you can do that in the community of, of like-minded people. And, and fellow Christians. So yeah. I think number one, and I don't want to be prescriptive, you know, I'm just, I'm giving my, you know, advice based on the question you asked me. I just encourage people to engage with the church where you are and let your guard down a little. One thing I've noticed is people will come to a church that's been there for 150 years and they'll start naming off all the reasons they don't like it. I'm like, you know, you're one person. Don't come into a community and expect them to all change and bend 150 years worth of tradition to make you more comfortable. Yeah, no, of course. No, I, I think your point broader too about don't don't exhaust this. Don't don't make the search so exhaustive that it's preventing an actual integration into a community, especially because that's probably a good point. I didn't think of too much about just because our natural proclivities, our tendencies seem to be that of, you know, instant gratification or immediate satisfaction of our, you know, ego's desires to attain happiness right there in that moment. And if that doesn't happen, then we move on. Uh, so it's probably an increasingly difficult challenge for the generation, younger generations, because their, their attention to a certain thing is so limited already just by, just by the environment or it seems like, like things like TikTok, you get 60 second videos and you watch 30 seconds of them and you're into the next. And if it doesn't immediately satisfy you, you're onto the next. And so it seems just like a culture increasingly faster paced to instantaneously getting your gratifications met right then. And so that that will there's this proclivity, I think, potentially that's broader than just religious to change or alter our wherever we're at in our lives all the time because we think, you know, the grass is greener, so to speak, everywhere. And so maybe, like you said, I think there's a really grand point behind 
that searching shouldn't become a hobby. It should become a, you know, you should be integrating, trying your best to integrate your own spiritual life into that process instead of just assuming, oh, well, that they have this one doctrinal, you know, heresy of mine that I created. And uh, so now I'll go to the next. And and then, 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 like you said, then you're 10 years later and you've still, and now you're at, like, now you're at a Buddhist monastery. Uh, but, you know, it's just because you, the next thing is always the best thing. And so I think, I think it's just an important point to make for people who might be finding Christ in a unique way. Psychedelics might be, who knows? I mean, with me, with me at least, and a small case study of a grander populace, I assume there's lots of others that might be finding their way in this way and intellectually curious. And so it'll be, it'll be like an important, hopefully a, important good um, discipleship mission for the church to try to expect maybe more people to be posing rigorously theological questions and be equipped to answer those and, and such. But like you said, that's not the only thing. And, and so community is an aspect of it, but there is an critical Christian importance to community, I think. And the practice of a lot of these communal ceremonies seems to be something that, that that's kind of a cornerstone to the Christian life. If one are, if one's to look at the teachings of Jesus. And so I think that's good advice. Yeah, you know, I have uh, friends who are part of our local cowboy church community. Yeah. Um, that is looks radically different than my tradition. So you come into my tradition, it's all stained glass, incense, you know, bells. None of that exists there. These are people showing up to church on their horses and uh, listen to some guy in a cowboy hat read the Bible. Even if I was convinced that my you know, path was more theologically uh, structured and, and, and more Christian in some way. And I could drag those people kicking and screaming over there and they would benefit very little, you know, because it doesn't, they don't, they don't feel comfortable in a, in that cultural context. Yeah. So I think that in order, in order for us to learn, we're going to have to be in a somewhat comfortable setting. And I'm not suggesting that comfort be our prime objective. Yeah. Um, we often learn most when we're not comfortable, but finding a community of people that you can love and serve and love and serve with is I think of more foundational importance than finding a community that checks off all your theological boxes. But in the best of worlds, you can find one that meets both. Yeah. Um, and chances are there's one in your community that, that will do that if you give it a chance, you know. I, I've seemed to agree, especially as I've been going to different churches. I, I, I've i found it to be much more welcoming than anything. And and so it's, like you said, I think that's all great advice. And that, that's what I wanted to get just from you, just um, knowing your journey right now through Christianity is kind of enriching you, I'm sure, in a lot of ways, talking with people like you are and, uh, and having been in, rooted in the Christian church for so long. I think all that advice helps me and probably others, I think, that would be in the same spot, you know, just to not to not make the searching the whole thing and to, and to try your best to to accept kind of compromise yourself uh, theologically and biblically if, if the if the uh, situation calls for it. Um, and you may even get something good out of it. Uh, who knows? But I think that covers a lot of ground. And I, 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 uh, I guess I'll probably let you go here soon since it's been about an hour and a half. But uh, I think we touched on quite a bit of really interesting stuff there. And I, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me. I appreciate you having me. I, I welcome more conversation. And, uh, you know, if you have another topic at some point you want to dig into, we can do that and yeah. kind of narrow, narrow down on something. To me, the Christian faith is a vibrant lived experience. And it's it's been 
the cornerstone that I built my life on. And I have no regrets in doing that. I realize that under the umbrella of the church, a lot of bad actors have harmed people and uh, manipulated people and violated people's bodies and their consciousness. And I regret to hear that. But I think the church is a powerful, positive good in the world in spite of those 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 problems. And I seek to invest and live my life in a way that uh, builds upon that. And my interest in psychedelics, I hope that in some way, what we're learning about psychedelics can help people who struggle with, uh, with spiritual concerns. Yeah. And I don't have any deep conclusions. I think that psychedelics could be valuable medicine in the lives of some people. And I think for some people it can become a detriment and a huge distraction, but the only way we're going to come to grips with that is by investigating it. And so I hope that what I'm doing is uh, making some positive impact in the world. When I hear from people like you who are doing the same, it inspires me to think that maybe I'm onto something. Yeah, no, I, I, I likewise, that's why when I came across your podcast, I thought it would be an interesting intersection of, of, a, of dialogue. And I think this gives us a good foothold to kind of advance to a future conversation for sure, where we can hammer down on a more specific topic. But uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, and I agree with you as well. Um, having coming, coming to Christianity and um, through psychedelics and all that, I, I second that mostly too. It's not necessarily me proposing um, that they be distributed out to everyone in abundance. However, the intrigue of it is rather, it's rather broad and it's infiltrated all kinds of uh, scientific medical circles. So it's not, it's not out, it's not on the cusp or on the fringe um, academically or societally to acknowledge their prevalence and their, their Renaissance essentially. Um, and it's important too, because I think that the psychedelics in the sixties, that, that rise of psychedelics didn't lead to the best cultural shift and probably this one this time around can lead us to a really good cultural shift back to a objectified moral framework in religion and in God. But if it doesn't have the support network that's being developed by conversations like you're having theologically and conversations like others are, I think that we'll, uh, I think it'll eventually become a very, a very big tool in a, in a toolbox for people to find their way from psychedelics to Christ or just to Christ in general. So I think your work is really neat. I very much enjoyed it. So once again, Clint, I really appreciate you coming on and we'll certainly talk in the future if you're up for it. I'm definitely up for it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, uh, Thank you. I'll be uh, checking out your future podcast for sure. Yeah. Same to you. Thanks, buddy. Have a good day. You too. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, as always, I hope that conversation was as enjoyable and thought provoking for you as it was for me. And thanks again to Ethan for inviting me to join him on his podcast. As for news concerning the podcast moving forward, I'm still considering ways to build community and broaden the reach of the podcast. Although I'm behind on my goal for hosting a community Zoom hangout for listeners, that is still very much on my radar, and I hope to begin soon. I would like to host these hangouts once a month. Initially, these will be open for anyone to participate, but eventually such meetings will only be available to monthly donors. Also, I've had a few of you mention that you would be interested in possible group retreats with others from the Psychedelic Christian Podcast community. These retreats might be as simple as weekend getaways to comfortable natural settings where like-minded people of faith can enjoy food, 
fellowship, and group activities. Or they might involve traveling to legal psychedelic destinations for group experiences in safe, comfortable retreat spaces with vetted, well-trained guides and Christian chaplains present to shepherd participants through their experiences. Please let me know if such events would be of interest to you. I have also been asked about creating podcast merchandise, t-shirts, coffee mugs, etc. I have certainly entertained the idea and will likely follow through on that, especially if those of you who might be interested in such items will let me know. It's kind of difficult to gauge the interest of listeners concerning such items. I'm sure some of you speak loud and proud concerning your thoughts on psychedelics and would be happy to wear a shirt expressing your interest in the topic, while others of you are quite reserved about the topic and wouldn't want your peers to suspect that you take interest in such things. So if podcast merch is something you'd be interested in, please let me know so I can get some idea of how much demand there might be for such items. One last thing before we part. The podcasting format has been a godsend to me over the years. I have learned so much from all of the hard work other podcasters have poured into their shows, and I would like to start shining a spotlight on podcasts that I have found enjoyable and that my community will also find interesting. So from now on, in every episode of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, I will mention and add a link in the show notes to a podcast or two that I have enjoyed or believe that my audience will appreciate. If you enjoy these shows, please let myself and the hosts know. It's a bizarre feeling having an audience for your content that you know nothing about other than the basic demographic information some of the podcast analytics provide. This is why it's important to reach out to the host, expressing your appreciation. Most podcasters are fueled only by their passion for the topic and never receive any compensation for their labors. A short message of support and your willingness to share their content with others means the world to them. Just like you, they want to have the satisfaction of knowing that their contributions to the world are valued by others. So a podcast I would like to highlight on this episode is Come Over for Dinner, a podcast created by a long-term personal friend of mine, Bess Hawthorne. Don't let her sweet Southern personality fool you. Bess is a force of nature. She is a devoted wife and mother of five children. She is a nurse, a teacher, a podcaster, a homemaker, and somehow still has time to serve her church and community. Her podcast has absolutely nothing to do with psychedelics. However, it has everything to do with other things that I am deeply passionate about, like food, hospitality, and Christian living. In every episode of Come Over for Dinner, Best hosts a guest to share their thoughts on Christian hospitality and their favorite recipes and cooking and entertaining advice. Although her podcast is geared more towards a traditional female audience, as a man who loves to cook, entertain, and celebrate the dying art of Christian hospitality, I really enjoy it. In my opinion, the pace of modern life has undermined the fabric of family and community life that holds us together. The tradition of loving hospitality has been almost completely lost in our time. The Come Over for Dinner podcast is a gentle hand leading our selfish, wayward culture back to the sensible, loving embrace of life in Christian community. So go show my friend some love and blow up her podcast. I'm sure some of you will enjoy it. 
And with that, my friends, until we meet again here at the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you. <laughs>